Well, good morning. My name's Matt, one of the pastors at City Reform. We welcome our young people to go to Children's Church. Their teachers are eagerly awaiting them. They'll be preparing to return uh, and participate more fully in our service when they do so. Um, we are starting today a new sermon series. This is in the book of 2 Peter. Uh, it's a, a short letter uh, written towards the end of Peter's life, as the letter itself tells us. Uh, you know, admittedly, it's not one of the most familiar New Testament letters. It's something we've worked through some as a church before, but uh, last year we uh, did uh, First Peter in the fall, so this year it seems to make sense to move forward to, to Second Peter. He offers uh, to us in this letter new opportunities, uh, new challenges, and uh, new ways of viewing our call to faithfulness, faithful discipleship in the world. world. Uh, it's a short text. As we introduce the book, I'll read it, and together we'll affirm that this is God's Word. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in 1984, a young rookie basketball player named Michael Jordan signed a groundbreaking deal with the shoe company Nike giving him his own shoe, and in the process, revolutionizing the sports marketing industry. Jordan exploded onto the scene as a transformational presence on the basketball court and a transformational presence in the marketing world. The airwaves of television and radio were filled with Michael Jordan and advertisements as he expanded his endorsement deals beyond merely Nike shoes to include Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Wheaties, Chevrolet, and Gatorade. For a child of the 80s like myself, the memories of Michael Jordan complete, uh, com uh, completing uh, feats of, of awesomeness on the basketball court, all empowered by that wonderful exercise sports drink. They're forever ingrained in my mind, and like every child of the 80s, we were convinced that if we too could drink Gatorade and have our electrolytes replenished by that iridescent orange-flavored drink, we would only be one swig away from excellence in our sports activities. As an avid athlete in, in high school, bike riding, uh, playing soccer in particular, either, either, even swimming, uh, I was always sure that if I could only get that uh, you know, ice-cold Gatorade into my body, that I too could be like Mike. Yeah, the Gatorade commercial would ring in our ears. Perhaps you've heard it. Again, if you're my age, you can't forget it. They would sing about dreaming that he is me. You've got to see how I dream. I dream to move. I dream to groove. I dream to be like Mike. Unfortunately, mere Gatorade or Wheaties or the right kind of shoe wasn't going to help a, a, a middling athlete like myself achieve any kind of greatness 
In some ways, as I think back to it, it's really a, a window into one of our major problems experientially in the modern world. We are, we are full in our life of so many icons and idols on the, or in the arena or on the stage or on the screen, those people that loom larger in life, and we often find our dreams are to be like them. And yet we recognize no matter what product we buy, we simply can't close the gap. We're not going to be Michael Jordan. We're not about to be the, the next star of stage and screen. The, the people that, that are influencing us on our social media are always several steps ahead of us. And the seemingly wonderful lifestyle that they inhabit just doesn't seem to be within our grasp. Those thoughts in the background as we turn to Second Peter. Enter, as we read the letter, Simeon Peter, uh, usually called Simon Peter. Simeon is the Aramaic form of the word. The, the name Simon was much more common in the Greek word, and it's almost always used that way in the New Testament, with the exception of Acts chapter 15. We don't know why it is that he's chosen to, we're chosen to, to, to read here uh, the more Aramaic form of his word. But occasionally, in similar manner, Paul would refer to, P to Peter as Cephas, the Aramaic form of that name Peter. The name given by Jesus, it means uh, in its root form, rock. I'm reminded that Peter was in the first century a spiritual figure who loomed large. And, and afterwards, in the imagination of the church, he is himself, in some ways, a larger-than-life figure. Peter was one of the original 12. And not only was he selected by Jesus to be foundational in the church, when Peter finally got it right, he was, he was proclaimed to be by Jesus representative of that faith on which he would build his church. Peter was not only in the 12, he was also in the, the smaller, more select group of three, often selected by Jesus to really see the, the inside story of what was going on. In the early church, and even before, Peter often spoke as a representative of the disciples. And on the, the day of Pentecost, when, when the crowds came to hear the message of grace empowered by the Spirit, it was Peter who stood up to preach. And down through the centuries, Peter has often uh, been imagined as being one of the really great leaders in the popular imagination of songs or, or stories or cartoons are, are drawn that picture a person standing at the gates of heaven, entering the pearly gates, it's usually St. Peter who occupies the role of the doorman. In the popular imagination, Peter looms large. And so if you were a first century a marketing company, and you wanted to market within the small but growing Christian church, Peter would be the one you would want. I would imagine a first century commercial would eagerly proclaim that those who want to attain to spiritual greatness would certainly want to be like Pete. Here's the remarkable thing. 
that although our modern experience tells us that the stars of stage and screen, those that compete in the arena are always one or two or three steps ahead of us, a, a shining beacon of happiness that's really unattainable, Peter offers something that is attainable. In fact, in his letter here to this group of Christians, he actually starts in his introduction by by naming them, the audience, as people who are remarkably like him. Now, Peter begins by telling us that he is not only an apostle, one with a special standing, but he is a servant of Jesus Christ. But then in, in the second part of that first verse, he, he introduces, he names those he is writing to. He names the recipients in the early church. And in a sense, as we read it now today, God's word for us, we too are being named. Look at how Peter names you. He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Do you realize how remarkable that is? Peter, this towering figure in church history, this important character in the early church, Peter the apostle, Peter the spokesman of the disciples, Peter the, the preacher on the day of Pentecost, Peter who would not only be active in spreading the church across the barriers of Jew and Gentile as the church moves outward into the Gentile world. Peter who would one day, according to the early church historians, give his life in faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says, you listening to me have a faith of equal standing with ours. It's amazing, isn't it? You don't need Wheaties. You don't need Gatorade. You don't need to buy the right car. Your faith in Jesus gives you an equal standing with the Apostle Peter. That's amazing, isn't it? This is really, really, I have good news for you today. This is great news. Here's what we're going to do, though. We're going to look at the passage and try to explore this. How is that possible? Maybe you're asking the question, how is that possible? Maybe, maybe Peter's not thinking of me. Maybe he's thinking of that person next to me. They, they look like they've got it together, right? I, mean, I, I barely staggered in today. If my roommate hadn't knocked on the door, I wouldn't have been here, all right? Uh, may, maybe you're thinking, I got here, but I'm not sure I belong here. Uh, I've been struggling recently. Perhaps you're aware of the ways in which your own weakness of faith and weakness of walk seems to loom heavy even over your place here in church. Good news. Peter does know of your situation. Maybe there are some of you who are here today exploring faith and you're wondering what it would mean to be a Christian Peter would invite you in saying, there is good news for you to hear, but friends, listen to this. If you have put your faith in Jesus, weak as your faith may be, you have equal standing with Peter. Here's three ways we'll explain that as we look at the passage. Um, first of all, we'll see the way in which Peter understands his faith to place him as part of a group. We're going to look at the, the way in which Peter uses p plural language, and in so doing, 
He answers some questions you didn't even have yet. It's important. Secondly, though, we're going to keep plowing ahead, and we'll see that, that Peter understands that our faith has equal standing because it's from, it's by the righteousness of God. And we'll think about the theological uh, background of what Peter's saying. But, but third and finally, we'll just close with the even more good news. Peter says that because of this, grace and peace can be multiplied. That's where we're landing today, this really good news. Grace and peace multiplied to you. So we'll move through those three things and it'll help you follow along as we go. First of all, uh, notice that Peter speaks of himself as being part of a group. Uh, he, he says something very interesting in the second part of this verse. He says, to those who've obtained uh, a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, maybe when you, you first move along the letter, you see Peter writing in the beginning, and you might think, wouldn't I expect him to say, with mine? Why is Peter shifting here to the plural? Uh, the simple answer is that Peter pictured himself as being part of a group. In fact, it's quite likely that even the writing of this letter happened as part of a group. It's not uncommon at all for uh, people in religious uh, institutions and groups to write together, to work together on doing any number of things. Um, but it's a particularly important insight as we think about Peter. Here, here are the reasons why. Um, there are problems in the text that perhaps you've never even thought of. Uh, if you were uh, uh, to study about the Bible at the, uh, you know, a, a non-Christian institution or introduction to this book would tell you that there are differences between First and Second Peter that are remarkably strong such that they don't believe that he's the one that wrote the book. Now, again, these are questions you might not have, but they're questions that are out there. They hang large over our discussion of the book. There are a couple of reasons why people might say that. And I think many of them stem from the fact that they have the wrong picture of what Peter's doing when he writes the book to begin with. And certainly there are differences in the topic between First and Second Peter. Uh, First Peter is written to a church that's experiencing outside persecution, fiery trials, pressure from their neighbors. But Second Peter is written to a church that's, that's experiencing the seductive power of false teaching from within. Very different context. And we know that anyone who writes to different contexts, perhaps even very different groups of people at different times, is going to write differently and approach the matter in a different way. But beyond that, there are some differences that are not as easily explained. The way in which Peter uses the Greek language is, is noticed to be a different style, and scholars tell us that it's markedly different. Now, what do we make of that? And the simple answer is that Peter was most likely writing as part of a group. In the 16th century, the Swiss reformer John Calvin was reading the New Testament, and he noticed the same thing. He says, I, we have to recognize the style is remarkably different. But as uh, Calvin stepped back from observing this passage and thought about it with sort of a, a, a cool, level-headed wisdom, he, he pointed out the obvious things. And Peter's old. The letter tells us he's near the end of his life. The, the letter itself says that he's probably near death. He may have been in prison. We also notice by looking at the New Testament that rather than working alone, Peter's always part of a group. 
And so it's not surprising that perhaps uh, Peter in his older age had someone writing the letter for him or Peter in prison had people working with him to send this information to the church. One of the other uh, things that troubles people about the letter is that the second chapter of this letter, 2 Peter, is remarkably similar to another letter in the New Testament. The book of Jude and the second and third chapter of 2 Peter are so similar that it almost seems like they're reading the same notes. And maybe they were. Common practice in the New Testament, particularly in Acts chapter 15, is for the church to deal with difficult theological matters together as a group. It's not surprising that uh, different leaders in the church would recognize a similar problem and provide an answer, perhaps coming from the same uh, sort of discussions or perhaps uh, reading each other's work. These types of things are very normal if we think about how the church works. But it leads us to our, our second observation, and that Peter, working together in the church, does not think of himself as a solitary leader. By the end of the uh, beginning of the second century or middle of the second century, leaders would begin to emerge in regional churches that were called bishops. And these bishops would begin to exercise authority over the churches, at times seemingly unilaterally. As the church history expands, the bishops would vie with power one for another, ultimately the bishop in Rome claiming to be the primary voice of Christianity. And many of you know by the, the time of the Middle Ages, the church had split into two between the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, both arguing about who had the primary standing with the Catholic Church looking at Peter as their inspiration Peter, the first bishop of Rome, they said, had the greatest place in the life of the early church. Except that's really not how Peter operates. And the most important time that early church has to solve a problem, Acts chapter 15, they gather together as a council of elders and apostles. And Peter, though he's there, doesn't even take a lead role. He's part of a group. He goes out in groups, ministering with others. And those of you remembering 1 Peter would remember when he spoke to the leaders in that church in Asia Minor, he, he actually said, I am a fellow elder with you. Peter actually in, in, in seemingly internalized the messages of Jesus about leadership. The leadership is not a place that we lift ourselves up, but it's a posture of service. And so in the intro to this letter, Peter can't even tell you he's an apostle without telling you that he's a servant. Because as a follower of Jesus, he followed the one who came to serve and to seek and to save the lost. As we think about it from that perspective, it's not surprising that Peter would say, you have a faith of like standing with me because Peter knew following Jesus means that you go low. And there's always plenty of room at the bottom. For Peter, faith was not a thing to stand on and compare, though the Bible does say faith can be stronger or weaker, but he recognizes that following Jesus puts you in a place of service. It puts you in a place where you seek the good of others even more than your own. And so what Peter says here about faith makes perfect sense as we think of a biblical model of leadership. Now, you may have noticed as I moved through that first point, I was intentionally doing a little bit of an introduction. 
Now, maybe you didn't have those questions, but some of you do, and they're questions that hang over the book, and somewhere we needed to address them. But having circled just a little bit, our train is back on track, let's keep moving forward, because we want to keep asking the question, how is it possible? How is it possible that my faith could be the same as Peter's? Let's think about it a little more theologically. Uh, the Bible does tell us that some faith can be stronger or weaker. At one point in, in the Gospels, the uh, disciples, including Peter, are panicking on a stormy boat. And Jesus enters in, calms the storm, and says to them, Oh, you of little faith. Other times, Jesus would marvel at the faith of people. Often in unexpected places, a, a Canaanite woman in her persistent asking Jesus for help is, receives not only his blessing, but also a commendation. What great faith, Jesus would say of her. And likewise, an unexpected character, a centurion from the hated, occupying Roman army, spoke to Jesus in ways that asked for his power and his healing that Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like that in all of Israel. And so there's a sense where faith can be strong or weak. Sometimes we may find that when, when difficulties hit us, it's so easy and natural to put our trust in God. Maybe you've had that experience. A, a hardship came into your life and you're just completely surprised that it seems like you weren't troubled and God held you and you, you just felt it was easy to trust. Or maybe, which is often the case, difficulties hit and we, we, our first response is to freak out. We look every other place and we scramble around and we, 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 you know, we, we try and marshal all of our resources and we exhaust every option. And then finally, when we're exhausted, laying in our bed in tears, we think, why didn't I pray about this? We're not only relieved by the presence of God, but perhaps even a little shamed by the weakness of our faith. Maybe that's where you're here today. Maybe you think, I had faith enough to walk in the door, but that's about it. Here's the good news, friends, that though faith can be strong or weak, and though that's important in the living out of our Christian life, at a foundational level, strong faith and weak faith both look outward to the same strong Jesus. Here's how faith works. The very nature of it looks beyond itself. And yes, practically speaking, in our experience, strong or weak faith can matter. But the fundamental, foundational, essential element of all of it is faith looks outside yourself to something else. Faith looks to Jesus. That's actually the, the real point that, that Paul is, uh, Peter's making here, right? He says, to those who've obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, and look at this little connecting word, by, by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, here's the way, the grounds, the means, that means your faith could be of the same standing as Peter's, because faith is all about the righteousness of God, not your righteousness. The reason that your faith could have the same standing of, of Peter <coughs> is because it's all about what God has done. It's about what God has done 
through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who accomplished what needed to be accomplished, that we could have saving faith and a right standing before God. It was Jesus who lived a life of faithful observance to all that God required. It was Jesus who displayed the love and character of God perfectly in human form. It was Jesus who went willingly to the cross to give his life as a substitute for you and me. Your faith simply looks to Jesus and trusts what he did. Strong faith and weak faith both connect you to a strong Savior. Imagine you are sick, and the medicine for your sickness, this powerful medicine was available to you. Every doctor would tell you that it matters what your perspective is in general. A, a good, out, healthy, optimistic outlook for someone in medical care does matter. It's not as if the, the, the strength of your, your thoughts and hopes and dreams in the midst of your sickness was inconsequential. But we also know that what really matters when you're sick is if you take the medicine that will help you. And perhaps you take it with great confidence or maybe you take it with great weakness. But if you call your, your doctor on the phone and they ask you how you're doing, they'll be really happy to know that you take the medicine in whatever strength of commitment you have to take it. If your faith is strong enough to look to Jesus, it's strong enough to save you. Because Jesus has all of the strength and all of the blessing and all of the attributes. Another analogy that comes to my mind as I think about it, I have uh, on our car, this sort of, uh, one of our cars, a, a fancy new device that, that allows me to, to start the car without using a key. There's a, there's a battery inside this little uh, device in my pocket. It sends a signal, the car reads it, and is often the case the battery starts to grow weak. Maybe you've had this experience. You'll get in the car and you, it, you start it up and the first thing that flashes is battery is weak. That's not good. But if your battery is strong enough to connect to the car and the car starts, it doesn't matter anymore how strong or weak the battery is from that perspective. Of course, again, this stuff matters. Strong and weak faith matters in a certain sense. But the foundational thing, the point that Peter is making here, is really a point about what the Reformers saw as the central teaching of the church. We are justified by faith. Because we're justified. We have a right standing before God based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. We read about this already in the service. You, you may have uh, sort of taken it for granted or perhaps the language was so familiar, the sheer wonder of it didn't wash over you. But if you go back to page four, just look with me at our prayer of confession. This is what we already affirmed. I think it's the fourth sentence in. We, we said together, though we fall short of your holy standard through faith in Christ, we are declared righteous in your sight. We are saved not because we have made ourselves godly, but because you justify the ungodly. Here's the point. Peter would have prayed that too. Peter didn't reach a place in his sanctification or Christian growth where he stopped needing the righteousness of Jesus. 
He was fully aware of his weakness. In fact, part of what made, makes Peter such a fascinating character in the life of the church is that his own weakness and failure is often visibly on display in the gospel accounts. Here in his old age, nearing, as, as the text tells us, the end of his life, knowing that death may be imminent, Peter looks at it and he knows the standing of his faith is the same as it would have been in the beginning. Though he's certainly different at the end of his Christian walk than at the first moment he began to follow Jesus, Peter knew the foundation was the same. His faith, strong or weak, connected him to his Savior, and that was secure. Well, friends, as good as that news is, the news actually continues to get better. The third and final thing we see in this passage as we look at verse 2 is that, that Peter speaks to people who know grace and who know peace because their faith, weak as it may be, connected them to Jesus. But look at what he says in verse 2. He says, may, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior. Now, you may not be a, uh, a math scholar, but I think you'll be able to follow me in my mathematical calculations when I tell you that multiplication is good. If you have something and it multiplies and you like that thing, that's a great position to be in. If you have invested money in, in, in uh, the stock market and your stockbroker calls you on the phone and says, great news, your investment has multiplied, that's really good, isn't it? You're really happy. Well, P Peter says here, the grace and the peace that is yours because you're connected to Jesus. What I'm thinking here is he's, thinking, he's, he's saying your experiential reality of knowing grace and peace, he says, may that be multiplied. Isn't that what you would want? Isn't that what I want? That's just what I want. The, the, the experiential reality of knowing grace and knowing peace, of walking in those things, Peter says, may that be multiplied to you. Now, how's that going to happen? And actually, it all flows out of the same thing, if you think about it. Maybe if you're like me, your first thought when you, when you think, boy, I'd like more peace, is you start thinking, all right, what have I got to do? I'm going to make this happen. And certainly there are maybe life decisions that need to happen that we would experience more of the peace of God. We're called to continual repentance. We're called to, to examining our life. And just a, mo and just a moment in the text, as we come back next week, uh, Peter will tell us, he says, you know, you have faith. Be diligent to add to your faith virtue and knowledge. And he'll go on. All that's true. But I don't think that's the point that's first made here. Look at, how, look at how Peter tells us that grace and peace will be multiplied. How are you going to experience a multiplication of, of your, uh, your, your living in grace and peace? How's that going to happen? He says, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Right? You see how that connects together? The reason that you have a right standing that's equal to Peter is that your standing is that which is given through faith in Jesus. It's the standing of Jesus. And the 
subjective experience of living that is going to grow the more you know about the God that has saved you. As your knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord increases, your experience of grace and peace will be multiplied. The more you know about the amazing salvation that is offered by God, the more you know the God that saved you, the more that experience of grace and peace will be real. Let me think about the things that threaten your peace and mine. The, the difficult people around us, the circumstances we can't control, the, the medical situation that seems so frightening. But if you have a clear perspective that the God who has saved you is the God who created you, who created the universe, who has raised Jesus from the dead, who is preparing for each of us an eternal future home, the more that reality sinks in, the more you can be at peace when things are hard, right? The more you recognize my hope is in my Savior, the more I know of my Savior, the more that experience of grace and peace will settle into our everyday reality. Good news, we have so many opportunities to grow in our knowledge of God. As we re-enter the, the fullness of the schedule of our church, the activities we do at church are largely centered around the reality that we want to grow in our knowledge of God, in our relationships together, <coughs> so that grace and peace will be multiplied in our experiential reality. <coughs> Sunday mornings we'll gather, continue to gather for worship at we do, as we do, but... Uh, Sunday school classes and Christian education for all ages are offered to us. Each of these are an opportunity to grow in your knowledge of God. Today after church, our church picnic will uh, be in part hosted. Some of the games and activity hosted by community groups. Groups that meet each week to, to pray together. To study the word together. To grow together in their knowledge of God. That grace and peace would be multiplied. And throughout the year, we'll have not only other events, but regular opportunities to gather together for reading and prayer as we seek to learn more of the God who has given us an amazing salvation in Jesus. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that we have a secure foundation, a standing in Jesus. It is the same even as that of Peter an apostle, a pillar in the church, this epic figure looming large down through the centuries who himself viewed himself merely as a servant, working with many other servants and standing in the righteousness given by faith through his Lord and our Lord, his Savior and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you uh, that you give to us a firm foundation of our faith. We look to Jesus. He is our hope in life and in death. And Father, we affirm that our faith, though at times it is weak, we look with hope to the strength of our Savior and we hold fast to his promises that in him we are secure. Lord, would you deepen these truths? Would you multiply in our lives our experiential awareness? May we know greater grace and peace 
as we know you and your salvation more intimately. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.